Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations of well-known books, presented by me, Lloyd Shepherd, and you, Tim Wright. I'm Tim Wright, hello. Um, this is part two of our investigation into The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. We've been to Casterbridge. We've been to Casterbridge, a.k.a. Dorchester, we, that's in what the we think. county of Wessex, the a.k.a. Dorset. <laughs> yes. Wessex is completely made up, isn't it? Wessex is made up. Uh, it's a confection. Actually, a confection that he actually encouraged. Uh, he, he he asked for his books to when they came out in new editions at the end of the well, 19th I think that, century. To, I think there's a, can we call them the Wessex novels? I think there's a marketing angle to this. Very much so. He, once he'd written them all and he wanted to repackage them. Yeah. But he was drawing maps of Wessex from, from quite an early age yeah. to create that. There's a very interesting article I would urge you to read on placesjournal.org mm-hmm. called The Invention of Wessex. Um, it's by Kester Rattenbury. The novelist and architect Thomas Hardy saw rural England through an experimental modern frame. His Wessex project was as radical in its time as Learning from Las Vegas and Delirious New York were in theirs, which are both books by architects. So it says here that basically um, architects are not averse to writing books, particularly illustrated books, to play a special role in how experimental, speculative or conceptual projects are made and shared. This is true. Uh, Palladio did it. Le Corbusier did it. Archigram in the 60s did it. So it's saying that, um, that he was busy writing sketches of imaginary buildings and writing maps from very early on. Uh, Wessex, as soon as it was named, had taken on a life of its own, Hardy's novels were making up an imaginary world which went beyond the books themselves. But it's an architectural project. It's about speculative world building. Very nice. I think there's something to that. I think it's more a publishing and marketing project than an architectural it's one. It's that too. Well, as, as, we're do, as, we're doing sideline, as we're doing sidebars in this intro... Oh, go on then. Uh, I want to talk about somebody who has been peculiarly uh, influenced by Thomas Hardy. Oh, yeah. Nigel Blackwell, frontman of Half Man, Half Biscuit. What are you talking about? It's a big Thomas Hardy fan. What? Often incorporates phrases by or about Hardy into his song lyrics. He's got a song called Thy Damnation Slumbereth Not, which is a Hardy quote. Gosh. So well, he's a big Hardy fan. How odd. Yeah. 
Um, but I, I thought he was. I thought he was more into Trumpton than Crafton Bridge. <laughs> you know, the Trumpton riots, high and low culture. Come he does on, it, he does it all. He does it all. So half so, man, half biscuit. Half man, half biscuit. Yeah, so if you if you if you've not heard them, particularly in our American listeners, they're very check good. them out. They are very we good. love them. So um, you'll see the flavour of what we do here. I thought that gave a good flavour. You you get the highbrow architect stuff, and I was like, it's awesome. you forgot about half men. Half Sometimes we take it. We take it in turns. We take, fine. It. We take it in turns. <laughs> so in part two, part two, where we're, we've been, we've done Dorchester. Really, we're going to move a little bit outside the walls of okay. Dorchester now for part oh, two. Oh yes, we had a lovely walk round the round the edge. We're going to start with uh, a visit to the bridges of Dorchester uh, over the River Froom. Which Where turned, Michael Hinchard has a bit of a moment. Yes, but it turned out to be our natural environment, did it not? It did, very much so. Lovely views. No, um, it's where all the losers go. We fit right in. near the lower parts of Castlebridge town. The first of weather-stained brick was immediately at the end of the high street, where a diverging branch from that thoroughfare ran round to the low-lying Durnover lanes, so that the precincts of the bridge formed the merging point of respectability and indigence. The second bridge of stone was further out on the highway, in fact fairly in the meadows, though still within the town boundary. This pair of bridges gravitated all the failures of the town. Right. Those who had failed in business, in love, in sobriety, in crime. Why the unhappy hereabout usually chose the bridges for their medita- meditations in preference to a railing, a gate or a stile was not so clear. There was a marked difference of quality between the personages who haunted the near bridge of brick and the personages who haunted the far one of stone. Those of lowest character preferred the former. Adjoining the town, they did not mind the glare of the public eye. The the miserables who would pause on the remoter bridge were of a politer stamp. They included bankrupts, hypochondriacs, (laughs) persons who were what is called out of a situation. (laughs) From fault or lucklessness... The inefficient of the professional class. Shabby, genteel men who did not know how to get rid of the weary time between breakfast and dinner. (laughs) And the yet more weary time between dinner and dark. (laughs) So guess which bridge we came to? (laughs) Strangely drawn to this place. I don't know why. (laughs) So we're standing at Gray's Bridge. Yeah. We a, are a bridge of stone. It's made for us, right on the town boundary. I mean, there's a there's a house, there's a seventies house called Grey's Bridge House. Yeah, which must be the last house in Dorchester because on the other side of us, behind us, yep, is green fields and marshes. For, I've for never miles. seen a town that just ends like this. Well, that, as I told you, it's because everything outside of the town border is owned by the Duchy of Cornwall, and that you're well, the Duke to, of Cornwall specifically, and you're. you're uh, you're not allowed to do anything with it without his permission. So we basically, the walk you can do from, the, from Cornhill, which is the top of the hill, yeah. down High Street East, 
all the way down to here. And we did cross another little bridge, didn't yeah, we? Which, which was bridge. then, and it looked like a, a street, a culverted stream. I think it's it? being incorporated into the road system now. Yeah, it was a culverted stream, and then it did go off down one side, and there were a series of warehouses yeah. or streets down there, which is like that's there that's for Durnover. the Durnover bit is in there. So we're going to go and look for Peter's Finger, which is in we're Durnover. Another rope, the ropiest of pubs, the ropiest of pubs out of the three pubs that we've we've mentioned. I think that must be on that stream. Yes, they talk about should, having all, I know, we should go them. follow that back up or something but like that. But Gravesbridge is very good. It's very, very good. It's a very good bridge because there's a footpath. We're, we're standing right on the footpath where yeah. uh, Henchard goes walking. That's right. And he, they, So this is where he would be hanging out when he's gone bankrupt and he's yeah. a bit down on his luck. It's not a suicide bridge because um, it's not very high and the, 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 the stream underneath is, uh, is very shallow. No, it's just it's the Froom or the Frome. It's the Froom or the Frome. I don't know. F-R-O-M-E but Hanging out with you My pronunciation has gone downhill yeah, I used fun. to be able to pronounce everything And uh, now I'm completely unsure It's eerily accurate isn't it Honestly you could walk down from Cornhill to here Take you about 7 or 8 minutes Yeah And it's, it's about 2 thirds of the book <laughs> Well it's very interesting isn't it That this, this, this Hardy book The Mayor of Castlebridge Is very definitely his kind of I wouldn't say love letter But it definitely is the one where he's decided no, I'm going to write about this town and what. I goes think it's up. fair to say it's the one he's done the least amount of research for because he can basically look out of his window. Well, practically, because actually, if you then walk, if you if you t- if you were walking down the street, you got this bridge, and then you turn uh, right and walk across the meadows. Yeah. The other side of the meadow is Max Gate, which is the house he had built right. for himself, which is where he would have been writing. It looks out over the marsh actually towards Stinsford. Is it the the cemetery where his heart is buried. Okay. And his, and his first wife is buried. Right. So he's looking out the window and she's calling to him. Come to me. While he's writing. Come to me. Yeah, he's probably, that's probably exactly how he thought about it as well. Mrs. Farthray wrote that, said Nance Mockridge. "'Tis a humbling thing for us as respectable women "'that one of the same sex could do it, "'and now she's avowed herself to another man. "'So much the better for her,' said the aged Fermity woman. "'Ah, oh, I saved her from a real bad marriage, "'and she's never been the one to thank me. "'I say, what a good foundation for a skimity ride,' said Nance. "'True,' said Mrs. Cuxham, reflecting. "'Tis as good a ground for a skimity ride as ever I knowed, "'and it ought not to be wasted.' The last one seen in Casterbridge must have been ten years ago, if a day. So that's the uh, people in uh, Peter's Finger discussing oh, the letters that have been found from uh, Lucetta to Henchard, expressing her love for him back in the day. Yes. Um, but now she's married to uh, to another man. So what's a skimity ride, Tim? Well, it's, that's what they ask. What do they mean by a skimity ride, he asked. Oh, sir, said the landlady, swinging her long earrings with deprecating modesty. "'Tis an old foolish thing they do in these parts "'when a man's wife is, well, not too particularly his own." That's very nicely put. I thought he'd made this up, but it hasn't made he this hasn't up. He hasn't made it up, no. No, no, um, it's a thing. Well, interestingly, the, the, the reason that sometimes it comes across that he's made it up is that he's the only major writer to have incorporated it into a story, I think. Ah. So a lot of people think he made it up, but he didn't. So I found a very good piece by E.P. Thompson. Oh, yes. In Folklore, Volume 103, Number 1, 1992. Rough Music Reconsidered. Rough music is the term which has been generally used in England since the end of the 17th century to denote a rude cacophony with or without more elaborate ritual. 
which usually directed mockery or hostility against individuals who offended against certain community norms. Yes. It appears to correspond, on the whole, to Charivari in France, to the Italian Scampanate, and to several German customs, Haberfeldtreiben, Theatagen, and Katzenmusik. Katzenmusik, yeah. yes, I've heard of There that. is indeed a family of ritual forms here, which is European-wide. And he goes on to say, Most of the forms in Britain fall into four groups. The Keffelpren, Welsh for wooden horse, riding the stang, widely distributed in the Scottish lowlands and northern England, skimmington or skimmity rides, entrenched still in the West Country but surviving elsewhere in the South, and plain rough music unaccompanied by any riding, although very often accompanied by the burning of the victims in effigy, found almost everywhere and commonly in the Midlands and the South. So skimmity rides, so what they are is basically, and it started off being sort of mocking husbands who were basically beaten by their wives. And they yes. would ride these kind of ritual streets. If you'd married a shrew. Them. If you married a shrew. But yeah, but basically it was about uh, you know having a... a keeping a, women in their place. Keeping basically. women in their place, yeah. exactly. Okay. And in, in Mayor of Casterbridge, it's about Lucetta, who's kind of, she's expressed her love to one man, but then she's married another. Mm. Absolutely, you know, gold dust for us. Do you think the people planners. in the pub, it's represented in the pub, uh, the, 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 the locals are doing it as a bit of a lark. It's just a bit of fun. Yeah. But they and the, and then, obviously, then it goes wrong because she reacts so badly to it. Well, she dies in the end. Yeah. Um, um, reacts so badly to the scandal, and he, he does too. Yeah. It the, rather um, whitewashes this, this rather dark background to this stuff. That it's basically about community bullying, isn't it? It is about community bullying. It's about, about maintaining norms. And it's putting people in their place. Um, Very and, English. Yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine there were, you know, and then there would have been a group of people who organised these kimchi rides who were the people who were, they were the town bullies, weren't they? Who yeah. just went around deciding who to make feel uncomfortable and who was in their gang and not. I, I find so the whole thing very distasteful. The ritual had many variants and allowed for much improvisation, invention and dressing up. Where the victim satirised was a masterful woman or a husband beater, two proxy performers might be seated in a cart or face-to-face on a donkey, mm. beating each other furiously with culinary weapons or back-to-back with the man holding the beast's tail. Riding backwards on a horse is a big part of all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's okay. It's strange. And the other, think, the other thing that's a big part of it is making a noise by banging kitchen utensils. Do you know this carried on, that the last documented practice of rough music was documented in a Devonshire village in 1973? Yes. Apparently in West Hoathley in Sussex in 1947 and Copthorne around 1951, there were some incidents... It was going on throughout the 20th century, which is weird, isn't it? Well, well, people chase cheeses down hills in this country. I yeah, mean, but you it, don't go it, around well, somebody else's house and sort of like wash, the, you know, and and then out them for their behaviour. Yeah. Do you? This stuff about adultery and you know, mind your own bloody business. Yeah. I I found a very good Hogarth print called oh. Hudibras Encounters the Skimmington, um, which is a, a rendition of it. It's owned by the king. It's in the Royal Collection. It, it was purchased by Queen Victoria, get this, in a sale in 1845. Wow. Uh, so Interesting. So she was just at the period that he, she's, Queen Victoria's out buying Skimmington pictures yeah. just as this is taking place. Yeah, yeah. In car- Did you know that Julian Fellows came from Dorchester, the inventor of Downton Abbey? I didn't know that. doesn't surprise me. I wonder if he's ever been on a Skimmington ride. Well, there's one for you, Julian. There's a isn't whole episode there, episode. isn't there? A whole be. episode. Downton Abbey does a Skimmington ride. Yeah. yeah. 
It's an easy. They're always aren't they always shagging each other in Downton Abbey? I've never watched an episode. No, so but I don't well, I, I don't know why you'd watch if there wasn't a lot of that going on. I have been talking to Cora. Now that is a mistake. You can't expect me to avoid talking to my own wife. Why not? I know several couples who are perfectly happy. Haven't spoken in years. Henchard, leaving the town by the East Road, proceeded to the second or Stone Bridge and thence struck into this path of solitude, following its course beside the stream, till the dark shapes of the ten hatches cut the sheen thrown upon the river by the weak lustre that still lingered in the west. In a second or two he stood beside the weir hole, where the water was at its deepest, he looked backwards and forwards, and no creature appeared in view. He then took off his coat and hat, and stood on the brink of the stream, with his hands clasped in front of him. While his eyes were bent on the water beneath, there slowly became visible a something floating in the circular pool formed by the wash of centuries, the pool he was intending to make his deathbed. At first... It was indistinct by reason of the shadow from the bank, but it emerged thence and took shape, which was that of a human body lying stiff and stark upon the surface of the stream. <laughs> wow. It's quite a good scene, isn't it? It is. And we are sitting... Contemplating... Contemplating our death. own mortality... After the after the comprehensive personality and character takedown by Hardy of us at the Stone Bridge, <laughs> I am now pondering throwing myself into this. Yeah, what's the point? Frankly, not very deep. I mean, the um, it's deep enough. Remember, there's been a drought. The, it would um, be. I think the round thing he's talking about and the wash of centuries, yeah, is actually a way to our right a little bit. I agree. Uh, which is now overgrown with reeds and stuff like that, but yeah. it is a circular pool. And right in front of it is a very rusty old uh, weir, yeah. uh, sort of a set a of gate. um, gates. Sluice gate, yeah. Sluice gates, which if they had been firmly shut, would have made that quite deep, would have made it quite uh, deep. that pool up there. And we're so looking, I think that's uh, where it is. We're looking... We've not walked far from the stone bridge. I mean, only a few hundred yards. He doesn't, it just says, says a few seconds, doesn't yeah. it? And uh, we're looking across the marshes towards the uh, the chimneys of the prison. Yes. You can see, the main things you can see are two church, a steeple of an abandoned church, the, the, the Tower of St. Peter's, and the chimneys of the prison. Yeah. There was quite a big military barracks here as well. Is there? Uh, um, during the period that um, when Hardy is writing the book. So there would have been a lot of Larry soldiers up here as well. So it, 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 as I say, it's very, very. It would have been a very different feel for Hardy, thinking about it from from his childhood to where he was now, of how it had been an old agrarian market, corn market town, full of field workers, to mm. what it was now with a Victorian prison and a military barracks and and lots of um, worthy Victorian architecture. It would have changed dramatically in his lifetime. I wonder what you make of it now. What do you um, make of Greg's? Well, I think he'd find it convenient to have a waitrose so near. He'd like a waitrose. Like we all nearby. do. He strikes me as a waitrose shopper. 
Well, I think he'd be I'll... campaigning for a Whole Foods, wouldn't he? <laughs> it's a very nice, peaceful spot. We're on here on a nice, um, sunny day. Nice sunny September day. day. It, a swan just went past. It's got a very gentle pace. There's lots of tiny little fishes in the stream there as you look down. Yes, an example of sort of pastoral idyll, isn't it? Well, it but is. With but that then sinister got, undertow. Of, you've got the prison. Oh, a sort of. As, oh, as, as, that is that a dead body in the water? So there was so much to say about Hardy that we uh, said we would do his biography in two sections. Uh, now we wanted to talk about his uh, what came after the Mayor of Casterbridge. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because the Mayor of Casterbridge is the first book he writes when he he's built Max Gate and yeah. he's now going to live in Dorchester. Yeah. That's it. But um, his last two books are Test of the D'Urbervilles and Jude the Obscure. Yeah, the big ones. Uh, the big ones. Very controversial. Mm. Maybe that's why they sold so well, but they sold amazingly well and basically made his future. He didn't have to work again from that point on because he made so much money out of them. And then so he, settle, he settles down in, in Maxgate with Emma. So that, this is the time when he says, well, I'm going to write poems now. I'm going to be a poet well, full uh, time. He, he's been writing poems. His first, his first publication after... after G- his first poetry publication was really a compendium of poems he'd been writing for yes. years, which and didn't go down well, I have to say. It didn't get reviewed very well. No. Well, the big event on the poems was actually the death of Emma. So Emma died in 1912, and they'd been coming increasingly estranged, I would say. Uh, she, she, moved lived in out. Atti- she lived in the attic. She li- well, she didn't live in the I mean, that, that's kind of the narrative. She didn't really live in the attic. They still She lived in the attic. She, <laughs> she moved into the attic and he, he moved his study. Yeah, they had they separate. They still spent a lot of time together. separate rooms. They had a lot of really amazing visitors, including uh, T.E. Lawrence. T.E. Lost- Lawrence, hilariously, because he goes to see him after First World War. There's a, there's a bit in his diary where he says it was only when he, on the train home he realised he'd been having a long conversation with Thomas Hardy about the war. He, he thought that Hardy had some quite odd views about the war. And it was only on the train back he realised, oh, no, he's been talking about the Napoleonic War. Yes. <laughs> well, because he wrote this massive um, poetry epic called The Dynasts yeah. that was all about the you ever read Napoleonic it? Wars. No, I've not read it. Oh, it's quite hard it. work. Emma dies in 1912. Before she dies, uh, Hardy meets this woman called Florence Dugdale. Who's she a become a, a secretary of something? A woman in her late 20s. This is extraordinary kind of mm. several years where this is this weird triangle between the three of them where she befriends Emma. Emma likes her very much um, and also is having this weirdly, is it sexual yet relationship with Hardy? Or does Almost it, certainly. Uh, but Emma dies in 1912. And from the minute she dies, really, Hardy starts thinking about their past together mm. and writes this set of poems about her, really. Yes. In, uh, looking back on when, you know, 40 years when they first met in, in Cornwall. Extraordinary sequence of poems that do sort of become very popular and yes. make his name. It was a it was in a compendium called Moments of Vision. Yes, and a large bulk of them are her haunting him. Yeah, mainly that he's being followed around by her. Yeah, and being made to feel terrible about not doing the right thing when she was alive and then trying yeah. to do the right thing when she's dead sort of thing yeah if you're his second wife you're getting a bit pissed off about that aren't you yeah she wasn't she didn't she didn't she didn't appreciate it very much no found, found it all rather difficult some of them are very beautiful poems though 
um, Max Gate, his house, looks out over the marsh towards Stinsford, where she's buried. So basically at night, he can stand at his bedroom window and look across the marsh to the churchyard and imagine her coming to him in the night. It's well, kind she, of quite she, spooky. She, w- she wouldn't have been able to get in because their, um, their dog would have uh, prevented it. Wessex. Oh, he's got a dog, dog called Wessex. Wire God, he's Fox really Terrier. into the branding, isn't he? The Wire That's Fox Terrier called Wessex. It was apparently notoriously ill-tempered. Used to, well, used it would be if, you, if, you, if a ghost kept trying to come yeah, in. Yeah, used to attack all sorts of people. I um, think there are five or six volumes of poetry that are published. Yeah. All, all, of, all of which sells more than the last one. Yeah, and, um, and, and in fact, a lot of the younger Georgian poets start to really take him on, don't they? Yeah. So you get that Edward Thomas thinks he's, you know, he's an influence on Edward a. Thomas. A. Houseman is a big fan as well. Right, and then yeah. it actually later on, W.H. Jordan cites him as somebody he does. he's very he does. influenced by. Um, he became great friends with this chap, Cockrell. It's not Christopher Cockrell, is it? Because he went to Gresham's as well. Sydney Cockrell. Oh, OK. Are they related? Sydney Cockrell. It was extraordinary, the kind of, you know, the links with modernity you know i was really he bought einstein's book on the theory of relativity and wrote quite a lot about it oh, found really? it very interesting Co- corresponded with pound quite a lot really yeah gosh he was quite he was quite a link between the two sort of ages really yeah so he died at max gate 11th of january 1928 now this is where the story gets really quite bizarre so this chap sydney cockerell hardy had said in his will that he wanted to be buried in stinsford Stinsford, alongside his parents, his grandparents, his sister and Emma. Yeah. Sidney Cockrell said, no, 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 no. He needs to be buried in... Um, Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey, in Poets' Corner. Mm. Basically took over the whole thing and sort of ran right over everybody. And they were like, well, how are we going to meet Hardy's wishes and also have you know him buried in, in Westminster Abbey? And the local vicar came up with the wizard wheezer saying, well, why don't we cut his heart out and bury that in Stinford? and then bury the rest of him in Westminster Abbey. Mm. But then the second thing was, as they said, the Westminster Abbey then turned around and said, well, he can't, he can't be buried, his body can't be buried in Westminster Abbey, there's no room. You yeah. can only find room for an urn. So it had to be cremated. So the family then didn't have, just have to swallow him being, his heart being ripped out. They then had to swallow him being cremated, which they hadn't been planning to do. Right. So he was cremated, so they take the heart out, he's cremated, the heart's buried in, St- in Stinsford. And then the scene at Westminster Abbey is extraordinary. The pallbearers, there were 10 pallbearers, the Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, Gosh. Ramsay MacDonald, leader of the opposition, the heads of Magdalen College and uh, Cambridge and Queen's College, Oxford, and six writers, Houseman, Kipling, Shaw, Barry, Galsworthy, and Edmund Goss. How weird. So that's a real piece of theatre, isn't it? Put together by his agent to establish him as... As prime and, and literary, uh, Shaw wrote later as, as we marched, brand. pretending to carry the ashes of. <laughs> so sure, as we marched, pretending to carry the ashes of whatever part of Hardy was being buried in the Abbey. Gosh. Kipling, who fidgeted continually and was next in front of me, kept changing his step every time he did so. I nearly fell over him. <laughs> so he's given two of them. This man who was kind of professed to atheism and said that you know he'd lost his faith yeah. in God is actually buried twice. <laughs> In religious, yeah, in religious circumstances, it's extraordinary. I still think this is a brand, it continues the brand building exercise, yeah. which is to make him, you know, valuable mm. even after death. Well, I bet they commercially valuable. I bet they repackage the Wessex novels again. Yeah, and publish them in purple and black or something. In terms of the poems, though, I, yeah, the last. Yeah, sorry, that was the biography. And, and yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the... No, I only I need to put the tin lid on it. Is that there? There he, there he is being very successful about about um, <clears throat> the poems and the novels. 
But he's always incredibly, whenever I read stuff about his own sense of worth in these things, he's always really, really gloomy about yeah, it. He's really gloomy. So um, obviously the last um, sentence in the book is about how life is just one long series of pain with one short piece of happiness in it. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's the start of, as you were saying about, this is the midpoint, Mayor of Castlebridge, and it's going to get a lot gloomier yeah. about how his view of the world. Yeah. And then when he's writing these poems and they're successful, he writes in his journal, I do not expect much notice will be taken of these poems. They mortify the human sense of self-importance by showing or suggesting that human beings are of no matter or appreciable value in this nonchalant universe. Well, cheer up, Tom. It might never right happen. Right at the start of his life, we mentioned Jemima Hardy. And yeah. I sort of wanted to finish with this because I think it sort of sums up a lot of what comes next. Jemima Hardy was similarly gloomy about life. Uh, and he wrote in his diary, I think in his late teens or early 20s, Mother's notion, and also mine, that a figure stands in our van with an arm uplifted to knock us back from any pleasant prospect we indulge in as probable. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, uh, okay. He's he's getting close to W.G. Seabold as the most miserable Q-spec writer we've known. Yeah. You did not walk with me of late to the hilltop tree by the gated ways, as in earlier days. You were weak and lame, so you never came. And I went alone, and I did not mind, not thinking of you as left behind. I walked up there today, just in the former way, surveyed around the familiar ground by myself again. What difference, then? Only that underlying sense of the look of a room on returning thence. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
A brook divided the moor from the tenements, and to outward view there was no way across it, no way to the houses but round by the road. But under every householder's stairs there was kept a mysterious plank, nine inches wide, which plank was a secret bridge. If you, as one of the refugee householders, came in from business after dark, and this was the business time here, you stealthily crossed the moor, approached the border of the aforesaid brook, and whistled opposite the house to which you belonged. A shape thereupon made its appearance on the other side, bearing the bridge on end against the sky. It was lowered, you crossed, and a hand helped you to land yourself, together with the pheasants and hares gathered from neighbouring manors. You sold them slyly the next morning, and the day after you stood before the magistrates, with the eyes of all your sympathising neighbours concentrated on your back. You disappeared for a time, and then you were again found quietly living in Mixon Lane. Huh. So we've been uh, we've been nice. walking along the river, trying to find a likely location for Mixon Lane and Peter's Finger. Yeah, we're looking for the dodgiest pub in the town. The dodgiest aren't we? pub in town. Of course we are. It's, it, it's really impossible to find because that whole part of town has been comprehensively redeveloped as yes. housing. Um, some of which is quite Poundbury-esque. Well, it is. The new estate is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is. But also, the other thing that's just on the edge of that area... Actually, in fact, you know the new development there yeah. is called Caster Bridge Road. <laughs> that okay. bit that's the Poundbury bit like. Okay. And, of course, overlooking it is a very large red brick house built... Multiple chimneys. In Quite the 18- Mandalay-esque, eight, I would say. Yeah, 1880s. Very grand. Max Gate. Max Gate, which is, in fact, Hardy's house. This is the house where he wrote The Mayor of Castlebridge. We're standing outside it, I should say. Yeah, that's hence where we are. The, we've ended the, up there. Hence the slightly melodramatic tone we've adopted. As I say, it was... Um, that because of, you were saying about trying to find uh, that area... And it's, uh, there is a mill lane, and there is a Durnover court. Yes, well, Durnover is the part of town that is, is, is described. Uh, yeah, and you can see that that bit would have been the bit that, he had, that would have been part of the marsh, yeah. as it were, before it got developed, right? Because also the Casterbridge Court retirement homes are being built there as well. Well, we passed... That's where Farfrae would send Michael <laughs> Henshaw to pay for him to go there. We passed them, didn't we? McCarthy and Stone. Well, that's in that area again. Yeah. So all in that area is... Um, so that's, the, this is, that's obviously the dodgy area. And also, then, you know, I said to you that Hardy was quite into knowing about other people's little secrets, yes. dirty little secrets. You were telling me this on the way here. Yeah, that he was apparently used to um, smear uh, the, the doorknobs of the... Well, when he went around and locked up for the night, he'd smear the doorknobs with butter or lard and check in the morning whether any of the servants' fingerprints were on the doorknob that they'd been sneaking out for a bit of hanky-panky. God. Just because he wanted to know, right? Yeah. But actually, if you think about it, it, on the other side from where we're standing, he would have had a direct view over that field and marsh. Yes. Where he's talking about seeing the local poachers coming, coming in going. across He there. would, yeah, he would. He would have been at twilight having a little sneaky peek. He, he said, would. oh, there's Tom, I know him. Because this is above oh, that, yeah. this, is, okay. this is high he, land. He would have edge. had a little notebook. He's thinking, yeah, saw him with three pheasants. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. high land, isn't it, above that? Yeah, above yeah, that yeah that's exactly about where it. it is. And you know what, for a little while he was a magistrate. So he knows all about this coming. He likes to know about everybody's dirty little business. But also presumably seeing that part of the, uh, the you know, because he's obviously describing the 1840s in the book, 50 years later, it's being developed. Yes. 
So he's watching it being developed. That's right. In fact, he's one of the people developing it. Good. Wow. What a house. Good shame we didn't pre-book our tickets with the National Trust. We could have gone in. <sighs> it's never that interesting, is it? Oh, I don't know. I would have quite liked to see would around. Would you? The, well, not inside the house. I would have quite liked to see around the Just outside wandering the around. Also, well, I would have quite liked to go on and smear butter in all the doorknobs. very confident about the dating of this book. Aren't you? I'm quietly confident, yeah. No, you're not quietly, you're quite noisy. I was noisy earlier. Yeah, now you're backtracking, aren't you? You're feeling well this is this is for public consumption. I don't want to come across as an asshole. <laughs> That's your job. <laughs> I've been doing it for years, mate. <laughs> you're so good at it. So this book, it starts on the fifteenth of September. Right? That much is true. One evening of late summer before the nineteenth century had reached one third of its span. That's the first clue. Yes. Well, we know it's the 15th because we know he makes a vow on the, on the 16th. 16th. He says, I will, I will on not On the morning drink. of the 16th of September. Yes, he makes that so vow. So 18 years later, it's September again. Elizabeth and Susan arrive in Casterbridge. Yes. The man who had bought Susan, hmm. Richard Newson, is described as being lost at sea November 1840-something. Something, Yes. Got that. So this is after 1840-something. Yes. The, they spend basically a year in Castlebridge at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a mention of a national event had just taken place for rejoicing. So hold that thought for just a moment. Mm -hmm. The first day-date combination that we can find arrives in Chapter 22, when they're described, the Great Candlemas Fair yes. is described as being on a Tuesday. Yes. Now, Candlemas is February the 2nd. Yes. Okay. So uh, there's a couple of 1840s uh, that it could be, but I think it's most likely to be 1847 for that, and I'll, I'll explain for why in a minute, because then there's another day and date combination that comes later on when he talks about the just after the two bridges, when, when he goes down to the two bridges. He says, in 12 days I shall be released from my oath. So it's early September, yep. 21 years off the beginning. But then he gives the day as Sunday, September the 16th. Sunday. Yeah. Mm. There's an 1838 that that maps onto, mm. but then there's an 1849. Okay. So I'm saying that 1849 is that date. 1847 is the Candlemas date, a couple of years before, mm. which makes the event of national significance the abolition of the Corn Laws in 1846. Ah. Oh. Okay. And then the beginning of the book is set, I'm saying, in September 1828. <laughs> well. This is where you say it's good, but wrong. Well, no, I don't say it's wrong. I, I, I think it's just debatable. Yeah. That's all. all and I, and they, I, I think he dies in December 1853. Okay. Wouldn't it? My, my, my hunch going back with, from, the, from the, starts, the drinking was that he'd start, in, that he'd start drinking in 8045. And that Susan and Elizabeth Jane would turn up in 1842, and that his the market uh, scene at the beginning would be 1824, 1828, 1829. There's a really bad harvest. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mention this at all, and in fact, it doesn't mention this at all in terms of uh, of the trouble so that's that going on. And then, then we've got the swing riots and all that kind of stuff. We're not getting any sense of the of any turmoil 
no. in the place around there. So I, I was thinking that it must have been before that, right. that it would be 1824 and that we'd get to 1842. And the, re- the other reason for this is then to say, if we look at the municipal buildings, we'd say that All Saints is built in, is opened in 1845. Yeah. So that not that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work with mine then. That wouldn't work, would it? No, because there were not three mariners down. Yeah, that's right. And the municipal building is built in 1847-48. Right. So again, the the municipal buildings kind of don't help your cause. So you're putting it earlier. What I'm, does that do to Sunday, September the sixteenth, eighteen forty nine? It's Sunday, September the sixteenth. The, the next earliest date before eighteen forty nine is eighteen thirty eight. Yes, I think this. If he's got that date wrong, this is a problem. So if you're Thomas Hardy and you're remembering yourself as a ten year old kid mm. and what the town was like, which is eighteen fifty, yeah. it's nothing like this. It's nothing like no, this. No, 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 So he's now remember, trying to reconjure up a place that's even before that. Mm. And I'm saying that, therefore, it's a, I, think, I think you should throw it back just a little bit earlier than you were okay. talking about. Right. Uh, because of the, the buildings that would have been around him in his imagination at, at 10, mm-hmm. between, which is where I think we're, you know, where it comes from. So you're saying the beginning is in 1822? I'm saying 1824. 1824, so we've got a four-year difference. Yeah, that's all we're talking about. It's, well, a, it's a minor. It's, it's a close, minor quibble. It's close enough for jazz. It's a minor quibble. <laughs> because, and then you, I would say it was December 1850 that he dies. And you're saying 1853. Yeah. Because I've got some things in the timeline, as I say, that there's a, that about when he starts drinking that I think it's actually a bit unclear as to whether it's two or three years. There's also a line that, that Elizabeth Jane says that for five years you've been telling me that I'm your, da- I'm your daughter. Yeah. And th- that doesn't quite square up with the two or three either. No. So that it's the actual the, the year the in between bits get in between a bit vague, bits get a, get a bit elastic. They do. <laughs> Elastic's better than vague. Right. So yeah. um, so he's not quite as curiously specific as you might think. Yeah. I think. Well, we'll see. And I say he's well, we'll just as an architect to forget about the development of Dorchester in the 1840s and just ignore it. That's quite bold, isn't it? It's quite bold. Quite bold. It's quite bold. Okay. Look, you sound a bit gloomy, like you've been knocked back from your from your dates. Uh, no, I'm not gloomy at all. I think you're wrong. Um, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but uh, you well, know, then let's move on. We are. We are. I just want to move on. The Ring at Casterbridge was merely the local name of one of the finest Roman amphitheatres, if not the very finest, remaining in Britain. The amphitheatre was a huge circular enclosure with a notch at opposite extremities of its diameter, north and south. From its sloping internal form, it might have been called the Spittoon of the Jotuns. I don't understand that reference. No, I don't either. Uh, Henchard had chosen this spot as being the safest from observation which he could think of for meeting his long-lost wife and at the same time as one easily to be found by a stranger after nightfall. As mayor of the town, with a reputation to keep up, he could not invite her to come to his house till some definite course had been decided on. Just before eight he approached the deserted earthwork and entered by the south path which descended over the debris of the former dens. In a few moments he could discern a female figure creeping in by the great north gap or public gateway they met in the middle of the arena and we're looking down 
into the middle of the arena. Two people have just come on the same... They've entered from the south, from the Henchard end. The Henchard end, yeah. And um, here it is. It's, it's the Malmesbury Ring? Yes, the ring. It's astonishing, because it's like in the middle of Dorchester. There's this huge earthenware... I did read it's the smallest Roman amphitheatre in Europe or something. Is that right? It's very small. But uh, the Romans apparently dug up an old henge. On the information board, it says that they started doing excavations in 1908. All right, so after the book. So Not after, after the book, the but book. Hardy was still living here. Yeah. And uh, having dug up a bit of Roman debris of uh, all the, uh, the audience's sort of uh, litter, the, um, they dug further down and found that it was indeed a Neolithic site and that there were, mu- there were multiple uh, chalk mines, uh, Neolithic chalk mines, filled in with um, deer antlers and stuff like that that they'd used to dig the holes. Oh, wow. Uh, and it had been a major, it was clearly had been a major Neolithic settlement before the Romans came along and said, that's a perfect place to put our sports arena. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that they, they claim the, Roman, it's, the Romans called it a new town, I think, didn't they? Yes. A bit like There's no, there the wasn't Duke of Cornwall here. calls his, his town a new town. Yeah, nothing to speak of. There was nothing here to speak of. Just a major religious site. <laughs> well, they did say that they said that in, on the information board, they say that uh, it, it appears that this would be the location of a, of a sacred site, possibly, as significant as Stonehenge. And the Romans destroyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you've got to develop. You've got to have some development space somewhere, haven't you? I mean, I feel like the Duke of Cornwall and the Romans would have got on. <laughs> so this is like putting a, a a football stadium on top of St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see the problem. So um, it's a lovely location. I mean, it's a brilliant. It's a brilliant place to be if you come on the Mayor of Casterbridge Walk. Yes. Which we'll put up. But it's a great, maybe a great place to finish your walk with a picnic. Perfect place for a secret meeting, to be out of sight. If you're living in Dorchester and you're having a tryst, this is where to come. Nowadays, of course, if you came down here at 8pm expecting to have a secret meeting, you'd essentially find a bunch of teenagers smoking spliff who'd just taken a break from the skate park. That you? would, you would find exactly that. Which is right next door, the skate park's right next or, door. Old farts making podcasts about Thomas Hardy. Yeah, excuse me, could you keep the noise down? We're trying to make a podcast. But it's, it's here, and it's in exactly the right place. So uh, I think we're done, aren't we? I think we have mapped out the Mayor of Casterbridge, the story of Donald Farfry. The happy comedy. The happy, um, the uplifting. The happy comedy, comic novel of Donald Farfry. So uh, we reached the point in the podcast where we reduce this historic work of fiction to two, two numbers, uh, an artistic merit um, and a curiously specific rating, which is how seriously does the author take mm. dates and locations. Yes. Let's do artistic rating first. Come on then. I've not read as much Hardy as you. Mm. I've only read this and Far From the Madding Crowd, I think. Mm. I've not even read Jude the Obs- No, and Tess. I've read Tess as well. Okay. 
That's not. I haven't read that much. Well, actually, I've read of the of those three. I don't. I think this is the least good. I would say. I love Test Fall from the Manning Crowd. Mm. So I'm going to give, and they both be nines for me. So I'm going to give it an eight. Quite a high score. Yes, but still not. I not not first rank. I would say. No, I always um I always think when I'm reading, when I when I'm about to read Hardy, it's a bit like when I'm trying to when I'm going to eat an orange. <laughs> that, uh, I, uh, I I I sort of think I'm not going to like this that much. Yeah, I, I'm doing it for my health. Yeah, um, it'll be nice, but it won't be great. And then um, halfway through, I think, oh, I'm really enjoying this. I should eat more oranges. I like the self-analysis you go through when you're eating fruit. <laughs> and uh, and it, it's always a surprise to me because the next time round, I'm the same. Right. Um, and uh, you never learn. I never learn. And uh, the same with the, when I'm picking up a Hardy novel. I'm thinking, oh god, this is going to be a bit. Of, I'm sure it'll be good, but. If, and then about halfway through, I'm thinking, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. It's just a rollicking read, isn't it? It is a rollicking read. It just read. goes on. And also, it's full of emotion and um, uh, uh, quite striking scenes. So the, the the one where, I mean, the iconic one is is um, Henchard and Farfrey in the in the hayloft having a wrestle. I always yeah. find very powerful. Is it? Uh, it goes on a long time. I think it's quite, well, I found it. You know. I like the ending. I love the ending. Yeah, the ending's good. I love good. the elegiac nature of the last tenth of the book yeah really. no i think that's Which right i think it's probably why you know i love tess yes so i love that i love the miserable stuff oh of course you do what comes out of this book i find is that his his philosophy going forward into yeah. tess and all that stuff is becoming very clear yeah in this book he's working it out isn't it and it's the last line which i love you're right the ending is good about poor old elizabeth um jane and her world her developing world view is that she says and being forced to class herself among the fortunate she did not cease to wonder at the persistence of the unforeseen when the one to whom such unbroken tranquillity had been accorded in the adult stage was she whose youth had seemed to teach that happiness was but the occasional episode in a general drama of pain <laughs> the end general drama of pain yeah so it's yeah. gloomy stuff but it rollicks along. I find it a bit too soap opery. I think it is too designed for instalments with lots of cliffhangers. And and in the end, the improbable stuff about whose daughter's who and who's married to who and who's going to die and who's going to succeed gets a little bit out of hand for me. Yeah. So I'm going to go seven. Okay. Eight and a seven. So, curiously specific rating. Now, I boxed myself in a little bit because well, I, was, you, I, was, I was slightly curt with you about your uh, your edits on my dating I'm I'm standing by my dating, um, uh, and also I think the descriptions, you know, sitting by the weir, going to the bridge, talking to the king's arms, all those kind of places, they're really there. So I'm going to give him quite a high score for this, I think. I'm probably going to give him, I don't think it's quite a nine. I'm going to give him another eight. Okay. For curiosity specific. Well, it may surprise you to find that I'm going to give him quite a high marking as well, because I, 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 I was really just cavilling at the edges. Yeah. around the dates I think it actually all sort of more or less maps out um, I'm just surprised that somebody who's invested so much in mapping out his world as Wessex putting it in the front of these Wessex novels books with oh by the way this town means this town this town means Salisbury this means Weymouth that, you know that he's got it all mapped out for you mm. of, 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 of the fictional world mapping onto the real world I'm just a bit surprised that he doesn't 
get it bang sort of bang on. As well, in terms of mentioning the architecture and the changes. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a bit surprised by that. But but um, in general, I think he's quite ruthless about organising this world around... He's reshaping the real world into the imaginative world of Essex. And if you think about it, he is a bit of a Kuspec pioneer because he wills Wessex into reality. He does. Is that we're talking about, as we said before, about a guy called the Earl of Wessex now exists. <laughs> Right, even though Wessex is a made-up thing, or the other Wessex is so that's kind of quite, a made-up person. That's isn't it? quite something, isn't it? It is quite something. And also the way he wills into existence through the creation of maps is very us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he's uh, so you know chapeau, chapeau. I would say you've said that for a while. Chapeau, Mister Hardy. Chapeau, Mister Hardy. Uh, and you're absolutely right that you can walk round the scenes of this book in quite a good in good order as they happen yeah. and i was most excited by finding the hayloft at the back of barclays bank that i thought that was good, wasn't it? i thought that was that very was exciting very uh, i also thought the ring the, the mornbury ring was perfect i didn't really see when i read because i didn't know i'd never been to dorchester i didn't really believe that was a real place yeah exactly we went there yeah and you're right to say also the the bridge and then the walk uh around the edge of the the the, the sort of wetlands to his house yeah very atmospheric yeah so Again, I always give high marks if, we're, if you're going to end up having a good old... We've got a good circuit, a good yeah. walk. So I'll, I think I'll go eight. I'll go eight. So we've got solid eights apart from a seven. Yeah, that's Three right. Three eights and a seven. Yeah, that's so not bad, is it? So that's 31, isn't it? 31. 31. 31. Good score. It's all right, isn't good it? Good score for the old man of letters. Not bad. Um, so uh, we're going to leave Thomas Hardy there. Yes. Um, I kind of feel... Well, we're going to leave his heart there. Leave his heart there. His ashes. <laughs> we're going to leave bits of him there. His ashes or whatever. Or his shorts, the rest whatever, of him we're not sure about. Whatever bit we're burying. So that was The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. Yes, I very much enjoyed the atmosphere. It's, it's slightly different to the rest of some of our previous podcasts. It seemed a bit more sort of... Um, Elegiac and peaceful and, I don't know. I was hoping to use the elegiac word, but you've used it now. Oh, Pastoral. Yeah, well, I, you can use liminal. You haven't liminal. used that for a while. Was it liminal? It wasn't really liminal. <laughs> um, I would like to say thank you for the music, the songs I'm, I'm singing, singing um, in, the in, in that episode. So the mu- you heard various uh, bits of music from Axeltree. Oh, I don't know who Axeltree is. Is that but one word, or is it one first, word, first name A-X-L-E is Axel? Tree, okay. Axel Rose, Axel oh. Tree. Hmm. I didn't think of that when I was. There. Um, he uh, his music is on freemusicarchive.org, which we've mentioned before. You can find it just by or her or their tree. music. No, I think it is a he because okay. I think I've, he, he mentions him. His anyway, he's, he's from an, uh, a collection of songs called "Music from a Hampshire Farm." Oh, I think he works on a farm. Oh, lovely in Hampshire. Great, uh, perfect. So I, uh, I would recommend you going to find uh, Axel Tree. His stuff is also on YouTube. If you have a search on YouTube, it's on there as well. Uh, also, a quick thank you to Alan Bates. Oh, really? Alan Bates read the the reading of the Walk. Oh, Thomas it was Hardy's Alan Bates. Was, was read it? by Alan Bates. He reads it very well. He does. And he? I was listening to it and thinking, who is that? Yeah, Alan Bates. Um, he, you know, <clears throat> you know. He can't hear you. Uh, no, I know he can't hear me, but well, but can he? He can. Uh, very good. And we also need to say thank you to Learning Music uh, on the Free Music Archive for the use of our little theme tune and bassy loop. We, we do. We do that every week, every every time we we do this. So freemusicarchive.org. You can have a search for Axel Tree, and you can have a search for 
Learning music. Learning music. Very and good. You'll find you find lots of uh, stuff on there. It's a great site. And that, my friends, is the end of series two. We're I'm announcing it now. Did you know that? I did know that. So we've done. <laughs> what's it? Fifty. We've done fifteen books. Fifteen in uh, series, series two. two. Thirty episodes. Fifteen books. Yeah. Um, it's and been we're, great. So we're going to take a little bit of a break over Christmas. Um, we will be uh, presenting a little Christmas treat. Yes, uh, a little, uh, a little special, special offer uh, during during December. So look out for that. Um, otherwise, we'll be returning in January. Yes, to do some books that I'm really not sure I like, <laughs> <laughs> or some books you didn't really want to read. Well, we, you know, in order to meet the needs of all our listeners. Yeah, uh, we we range across an, a, a whole load of genres and types yeah. of book, don't we? And we've ended up somewhere where I'm going to feel really quite uncomfortable. Yeah, I think back into my comfort zone. For yeah, a so while. listener, if you want to listen to me struggling, <laughs> <laughs> uh, come back in January. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.